Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Pipeline Superheroes podcast, where we feature interesting voices in B2B SaaS. Today, we have another New York entrepreneur, Stephanie Mertz, CTO and founder of Eisen. Stephanie, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Of course, happy to have you and also happy to have somebody with a technical mind on this podcast. We typically have a lot of B2B go-to-market folks. I think your perspective will be really interesting to a lot of the audience and how you grapple with a lot of the problems and challenges of, of starting a business from a technical perspective. I'm sure there's some similarity and differences in how I'll come at it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But uh, by ways of getting started, tell us about the story of founding Eisen. So I guess from the very beginning, my co-founder and I met in college. So we've known each other for a while. We both did our computer science degrees together and kept in touch as we went in very different directions. He moved to the Bay Area. He was a product manager at Coinbase. And I most recently was a software engineer at Two Sigma, which is an institutional asset manager. So we both really love building products for complex and nuanced operational problems. And we came back together, moved both to New York City, um, I suppose about 18 months ago to really get started on the Eisen journey. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And tell us what it does. What's the product? We're trying to solve the fintech dormant account problem. So lots of fintechs at around the three to five year age are starting to have to deal with the achievement process. Achievement's the transfer of unclaimed property or assets to the state in which the user is based when the rightful owner of those assets can't be located or identified. So our goal is to help reunite those owners with those assets before that process even kicks off. And isn't the asset transfer necessarily like if the asset holder passes and there's not a will or what are other kind of sort of transfer scenarios? If that's That is a really it. good example. But in fintech, we're actually seeing a lot more of the case where people open accounts Maybe they saw a Subway ad. Maybe it was a really exciting app that they were looking forward to using. And then they forget about it and they stop interacting with the app. So perhaps they're you know, alive and fine, but they haven't actually demonstrated any activity with the account. That's sufficient mm -hmm. for the fintech to have to consider a sheeting that account. What are like, is there like a, what's the term? Uh, statue of limitations on how long you can keep money or whatever kind of assets in a whatever digital form before you have to like move the the you know uh metaphorical cursor around yeah so there's a, a dormancy period that's associated with different asset types it's not even just digital assets it's physical assets as well like if mm -hmm. you were to leave something at a bank um, we're particularly interested in the digital problem. Generally mm -hmm. speaking, for something like a securities account or savings account, you're generally looking at three to five years. Three to five years. Interesting. What what determines that? Like, is it by the type of, like the asset class? It's very interesting, just the concept of money sitting out there. And I mean, forgetting about your own assets aside, just like that that is becoming like a, you know, ponderous issue. Yeah, it's it's becoming a huge issue too, as people can really easily spawn these new accounts with fintech. So mm -hmm. I know I myself have tons of different accounts, more so than my parents' generation ever would have mm -hmm. had. They had their mm -hmm. one banking institution. There are some great sites to, to locate your own assets, but for us, we're really focused on the business side of this, of helping the fintech manage the process from, from start to finish. Um, so there's a few things that really play into that. 
there are state-by-state state regulations. So it depends on which the which state you're looking at, which for some banks and larger financial institutions, they might actually use the location of the institution itself. But generally speaking in fintech, you're looking at the last known address of the owner. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And as well as the asset class. Do you have any idea like how many funds are sort of unclaimed or like, uh, I might butcher the pronunciation of it, but are like trending towards achievement in like the next couple of years? We don't have a great number on it because these are, I don't know if you read the report that recently came out on Block, but there's very little information that's out on what percentage of accounts are active or inactive at each fintech. So it really depends to you on, on how you define activity. And there's a little bit of legal gray area in that. Does logging in count as activity? Does calling customer, customer service count as activity? Both of those are generally seen as activity, but can be hard to kind of track those metrics across a large organization. Wouldn't it also like there's sort of a, um, like a confliction of interest where I would imagine a lot of, especially consumer facing FinTech platforms are reporting on heuristics like daily active users, monthly active users. So it behooves them to be generous in their reporting of activity for the sake of, oh, look at our platform. People are very active on it. Well, what you're saying is that actually, you know, necessitates sort of a legal gray area, or not even a gray area, a legal sort of issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's one thing when it comes to investor reports, and it's a very different set of rules and regulation around achievement and the pre-achievement due diligence in particular, where there are audits that are common where you can kind of work hand in hand either with an internal or external regulator if prompted to figure out what actually that definition should look like for your and your institution. Um, but activity is is pretty well defined in terms of what that counts. Transacting obviously counts, um, but um, doing nothing does not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How does that change with crypto in terms of the regulations therein and necessarily like um, the time frame, how the money's measured as, you know, it's obviously famously sort of a volatile asset. I'm curious how that adds complexity. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we've had a background in the crypto space, so it's an asset class that we've been really particularly mm -hmm. interested in. A lot of states are starting to adopt regulation to specifically call it out in terms of what the dormancy period should be for virtual currencies. I think where this poses a unique challenge is in the actual achievement process. So once the fintech is decided this is a dormant account, it has elapsed on the dormancy period and they're ready to achieve it, how do they actually send that to the state? Can the state custody that asset? And often, if not, the asset gets liquidated and the funds from that liquidation get sent to the state and the state will then try and rematch the funds and the owner, but it's not the underlying currency. So you may have actually wanted that underlying currency, which may have appreciated greatly in the time between it was achieved mm. and you claim it back from the state and you miss out from those gains. So I think it's really starting to prompt a broader conversation of what can fintechs do, maybe even beyond the actual regulations to pair the owners and those assets before the funds get achieved so that the owner gets to decide, do I want to liquidate these at all? We're hearing pretty consistently across fintechs that fintechs would much rather return the asset than achieve it. So everyone's interests are kind of shared in having the owner be reunited, even if that means pulling the assets off platform. Wow. Yeah. 
I guess that's sort of the luck of the draw of when you when your assets get sheeted and then you know whatever asset that was in, I would imagine they liquidate it into fiat and I don't know whatever they liquidated it into. Interesting. Um, so what's the plan with Eisen? So like, tell me, walk me through like you know where the business is at right now, how you're growing, what's the customer acquisition strategy, like the long and short of it, please. Yeah, for sure. So the short of it is that we've been really focused in partnerships. So our goal is not to build out some product in the dark and come to fintech companies and say, hey, we've solved your process that we've seen nothing of, but we're really convinced this works for you. So instead, we're much more focused on trying to do pilots, which lets us ensure we're actually building the right thing for that team. I really like the term pilot because for me, it sets up the customer dynamic really early on in the way that I want, which is I really want their active feedback and I want their participation. This only makes sense if it's a product that is a lot better than their current process. So I suppose that that's the long version of that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And what kind of partnerships have been fruitful to date and, and why is that? In the fintech space, not all fintechs are regulated entities themselves. They may actually just be the tech UI layer on top of an underlying holder like a bank. So you might have a neobank that is the name and brand that you recognize that you interact with, but the bank is the one that's underlying that and custodying your assets safely. So we've been interested in partnerships both with the fintechs that are interacting with the customers, as well as the underlying holders for the different assets, because we've seen it's a very multi-party process in navigating complex regulatory requirements, as well as doing best and beyond best efforts to reunite with owners. Mm -hmm. So what's like the, your ideal customer as you, as you like work with these, um, with these partners as well? Like, is there a certain type of FinTech on you know either regulated or otherwise? Yeah. A lot of earlier, smaller FinTechs just by nature of their age don't have any potentially dormant accounts, a one-year-old fintech, those accounts probably have not actually passed the dormancy period. So we've been really focused on fintechs that are about three to five years of age minimum. So they may be running into this problem for the first time. They may have gone through this process a few times and don't have a great process set up. So that three to five year B2C fintech um, whether it's just a neobank or a neobank with some kind of stocks option or crypto, whatever the set of asset classes are, but that three to five year B2C setup. Mm -hmm. Great. And then if I am, you know, a operator at one of your clients, what am I engaging with from a product standpoint? And what is sort of like my aha moment? <laughs> I think what we've been seeing is a lot of people have a very manual human-based process now. So my hope for the aha moment is just having to take all that mental burden of this large rule set of your day-to-day -day activities of the different cycles you have to run through each year, just having that all in a tracker where we can do as much as possible to automatically due diligence and outreach to individuals. We can hopefully find better contact information, but I think the real aha moment is just not having to keep this all in someone's head and over emails. They're going back and forth with various service providers Mm -hmm. Not sure if that yeah, totally hit on your question. Yeah, no, definitely. And it sounds like it's something that creeps up on you um, as a fintech. You know, like 
granted, I'm not in fintech, but I'd never heard of the term a sheet mint before. I would imagine that most people, most operators within the fintech world understand what that is, but it sounds like it's not something you necessarily have a plan for. Um, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. And I, I think that may be the ideal case. If you're a one-year-old fintech, you should be figuring out how to build the best product for your users. You shouldn't have to be solving a problem that every other fintech has to solve. And I think that's what I'm particularly excited about is this should be no fintechs, except for ours, expertise. They're focusing on their own problems that they can do best. So that's where I'm excited is I think we can build a better product because we can have our full team focused on doing this the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Yeah. Um, if I'm a consumer, is like the upshot for me is I put money in Coinbase or choose your you know crypto exchange platform. I forget about it. And then in five years, I get notified from the fintech. Do I get notified from Eisen? Like what's my user experience? Your user experience is you get notified by the fintech. So legally speaking, most states require physical mail. So you may even get a piece of physical mail that notifies you about the achievement process, tells you what's going to happen and when. But like you already mentioned, this is not a word most people are familiar with. It's not yeah. a concept that rings a lot of It's not of easy to say either. It's not easy to say. A lot of people we've heard will get these and think it's a scam. So they shred it and they don't respond. Um, so yeah. the, the response rates on these are really low. So you probably will hear from the fintech or even the underlying holders, but that may not actually cause you to take the actions that you need to take. So in that case, it'll get sent to the state who may even proactively reach out to you. If that's not the case, you can find them and claim it back from the state. Um, but you, you put your assets in Coinbase, you either would like for them to stay there or probably move them somewhere else. No one is selecting that they get moved to the custody of the state. Mm -hmm. What happens when it's a little bit like more complicated where maybe that person's passed away or, you know, their assets have gone into bankruptcy or whatever. Like, tell me about like some of the complexities and how that is baked into the product. Yeah, there's always going to be, I think that like last 10% of cases that are relatively bespoke. We have service providers that we work with to consult with on those stranger, more edge case situations. And I think it's always going to be the case that there is some percentage of accounts that we can't reactivate that do need to move on to the achievement process. It's there for a reason. It's meant to act as this safety net so that the states can then do their best. And they have treasure troves of information more than we have available to find people. They might be able to search through tax returns, through driver's licenses. So that serves a real purpose. Our goal isn't to prevent all accounts from getting sheeted. It's to really put something like layers of filters above the safety net to try and either reactivate or offboard customers to their platform of choice, as many people as we can, and those that we can't enable the achievement process then. Mm -hmm. What's the inspiration behind the name Eisen? Um, so we were really inspired by the Eisenhower Interstate Highway System. We, as most are. As, 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 I, I, as if every I a, The podcast listeners are going to be sick of hearing that, but you were saying. <laughs> it's an awesome system. I've read now many books on the highway system. So I think we were really impressed by the level of investment in infrastructure build that then just unlocks that ease of transport mm. for everyone. 
So Eisen is a is a take on the name after the highway system. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, shout out to Dwight Eisenhower. Um, what has been the biggest like unexpected change in terms of like from a career, you know, responsibility standpoint, going from a technical background to a technical slash founder leadership background? I think I've been surprised at how tech really comes second. I think a lot of people are really excited, especially in startup world, see a problem, put a tech solution in front of it. But I think I'm actually a little bit more skeptical and I would rather intermediate that with a service, maybe put a tech layer in front, but really learn the nuances and the in and outs of how processes currently work before you make a whole lot of what's naturally going to be wrong assumptions in your first build of a product. So we really just try and take a pause and learn for a while through doing before building. And I think having come from an area where I was at a company where I was surrounded by people who really deeply understood their problem areas, it was a lot easier to jump from problem to solution. And now we have a much longer discovery and learning process. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. I like that line, uh, learning to be doing before building. I think that is sort of like the push-pull of any entrepreneurial pursuit is that there's so much to be done while at the same time you're trying to build necessarily a product or something that you know is better for the long term. And that's how you get into not accusing you of this in the slightest, but situations like technical debt and all those other sort of uh, you know, not saying there's the cutting corners of it all, but like necessarily like, you know, good today is sometimes better than perfect tomorrow. Um, awesome. And then so tell me about like the next few months and quarters of Eisen. Are you funded? What's the what's the vision? So we we are funded, which has been a really nice ability for us to be able to invest in that learning time and that infrastructure build to come out with a better product on the other side. Our real focus over the next couple of months is about detecting market pull. So we've seen overlapping problems at various fintechs and their underlying asset holders. And we have directions for features that we're building out. But my real goal is to really thoughtfully build out that roadmap in a way that's going to work for the overlapping customer sets that we have. So mm -hmm. instead of building and pushing and sales, instead focusing more about kind of customer relationships and listening and roadmap development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I read your blog about market pull and that and and for, you know, by ways of expository, would love to understand, you know, sort of your unique approach or your unique definition of that. Um, and also, I think you had something really insightful to say about like the different paths of PMF and maybe like how your product, your journey and background and along with your co-founder uh, your co -founder and the rest of your team informs your specific direction. Certainly. And I'll, I'll caveat it by saying we're really interested in building in the B2B space. So I think that looks very different than companies who are building for consumers. And um, I think having to guess a little bit more about what consumers want, we've really focused on deeply understanding problems. And I think that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. Um, but the blog post you're referring to, I was delving a bit more into what I my take is on depth of understanding. So we found that when we would kind of Google our way around problems, meet with some people, lightly understand problems, and build out a product we thought solved that problem, 
we would have to spend so much effort and time in sales and outreach and convincing, and we would never really actually solve the problem that they had because we didn't understand it 100%. And if instead what we've been doing is trying to not even think about sales, sales comes after you're really confident you're building the product that's right for your market. Instead, we've been focusing on finding the right people at the right companies working on the problems that we're interested in solving, understanding what they currently do, asking for feedback on some of the features we're building out that are really early before they're even fully baked. Like, hey, give me some early feedback on this. Is this something you'd be excited to use? If not, those are the people we want to be excited to use our product. So let's go back and make another version. And I think that's um, enabled us to detect pull a little bit more. So are people really excited to engage with that? Are they looking for the solutions we're building? If not, why are we building something to convince them if it's not actually solving their problem? And instead that poll feels like people who are really excited to talk about the problem you're solving, really excited to give you feedback because you are making their lives better with a product that fixes a problem they currently have. How do you measure that as a hammer looking for a nail as a B2B digital marketer by trade? Um, the beauty of a lot of those channels and endeavors is there are benchmarks and inflection points. And uh, so curious how like, because that sounds like a very collaborative process where you would get a lot of good insights, but I wonder if you're able to quantify that. Yeah, we look at a few things in particular. How many follow-ups are we having to send? Are we having to follow up at all? How long does it take to hear back from outreach? And then I think it's a little bit harder to quantify, but the tone of the responses. Are the responses willing? Because maybe we know someone in common and there was a warm intro. That's not super helpful. If someone's willing to talk to you, they're doing it as a favor. You're, you're probably not quite hitting on their pain point. But if instead they're responding with excitement and eagerness that's not made up. That's not just because they're they're not looking for new friends. That That's probably a decent sign that you're at least hitting on an area where there are real problems. So those have been the three that we've been particularly focused on, but I agree. They can be a lot harder to quantify and benchmark because they we're dealing with smaller numbers. We're not trying to sell to millions of people like the B2C companies are. Yeah, interesting. Cool. Um, and then by ways of wrapping up, Thank you so much for the time, but also would love some time for you to uh, promote anything or, you know, if you have anything to offer, sort of an asks and gives at the end of the, every podcast we do. Appreciate it. I would love to hear from anyone else who's really thinking about that kind of deep level of partnership in B2B fintech sales. I think it's a really fascinating space that's been evolving a lot over the last couple of years. Um, as, as far as um, promotion, I love a couple of fintech podcasts that I've been following. Um, anything Nicole Kasperson puts together is just really captivating. So if you're looking just to learn more about fintech in general, um, I would point you to anything she's done. And This Week in Fintech are some really awesome resources. Great. Well, thank you so much. And I'm very excited to be following the Eisen journey. Thanks so much for your time. This is lovely chat.